There have been many trends that stem from the pandemic, but one in particular became an instant favorite for those 21 years and older, to-go cocktails. Pre-pandemic, lawmakers banned customers' ability to take booze on the go. But because of the closure of indoor dining, many restaurants were left wondering how they would make ends meet. In order to accommodate the losses, lawmakers in 14 different states and the District of Columbia decided to permit restaurants to allow customers to take wine, liquor, and beer from the restaurant in order to help. But booze on the go? There's still a lot of red tape. And how can e-commerce and delivery service accommodate this sometimes risky addition? Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. So I think that prior to the pandemic, the only location that allowed you to do to-go beverages was New Orleans. Yeah, or at least open container. That was that was the big difference. I'm not sure certain places around here. New York, legally, you could sell closed like cans of beer. Like if you wanted to sell that to go, that was allowed. Yeah. But no, no wine, no bottles of wine that had come from a separate delivery. Huh. So I, I don't know for I can't speak for other parts of the country, but I didn't see like my ties on like Grubhub anywhere in my travels or anything like that. So I have to imagine this is, you know, the pandemic kind of brought this out. That was like the one moment where it like became okay for all these places to do it. Oh yeah. I, it was a big deal in Chicago when they lifted these these restrictions. And I remember so many of the restaurants were using them to upcharge the orders and to help with the profits. Uh, I mean, right. I know I read um, somewhere recently that a restaurant's profits have increased or can increase by 25% when you add on the to-go cocktails. And I, I totally believe it. I mean, how many times have I ordered tacos and then gotten the margarita pack to go with it, which is like 30 or 40 bucks sometimes? Well, it's just basic margarita margins and basic business model if you don't if you take out one of the most profitable elements of a meal yeah uh, at a restaurant through delivery then which is alcohol you are going by nature to cut out most of the most of the profit that you can make off of it so this was one of those things that was a lifeline but i think it also now makes it proof that like you know the city's not burning down uh because people can order you know a margarita with their cocktails that they eat at home right it's a, it's a, an important step towards this if, if we are moving towards a more delivery friendly restaurant industry, then this is going to have to remain a part of it. Otherwise, you're going to see restaurants struggling because no matter how you cut it, the the cocktail, the wine, the beer is such a huge profit add on to that meal that if it's not part of it as a huge growing part of your business, you're going to start losing money. Well, and it's got such a long shelf life. And so you therefore have lower labor costs. I mean, I feel like you could keep a bottle of booze forever and the mix doesn't really go bad, right? Or not, or it takes a while. Well, there's also too. It helps the restaurant in a lot of other ways. Like, say you have more product there, and you are doing more delivery business. You're going to push through products that are that do have a shelf life faster. Like my lines. When I was pouring beer during the pandemic, we were doing, you know, pints to go that people could take home or take to the park. You know, now that we told them to take it to the park, but <laughs> sure. th- that helped our our draft lines, which you know you got to kick through in like at least you know no no longer than three four weeks. Yeah, uh, that helped us a lot to get through things that you we weren't getting through fast enough at the time. Um, Same thing for wine. Like if you have a a glass of wine to go, it's going to help you get through these bottles that you may open up and only sell a couple of over the course of a night. You know, that that spoils, you're going to have to dump it out. So it can help on losses as well. Again, all coming back to profit and money generating for these restaurants that desperately need it right now, especially if you're paying high fees to these delivery services, any little added bonus helps, especially on the good margins that alcohol provides. Right, right. And I know that some states are only allowing for example, beer or wine, where other liquor or pre-mixed cocktails may not necessarily be allowed yet. What is? Do you know what New York is allowing right now? New York, I mean, I, and I, I don't think they finally this quite yet. I could be wrong, but they are they are full blown. You can do straight up cocktails to go as well. So it's it's liquor all the way down through beer. And 
I think that's actually helped a lot of places around here because there are a lot of really great restaurants with really impressive signature cocktails that they like to sell as well. Yeah. And it kind of, I remember now going on and seeing what the options are. When you have a night in now, it actually elevates it a bit. I can be like, okay, you know what? I was planning on getting this, you know, this awesome meal and I'm going to add this really good cocktail on with it. Like I'm excited to have this alongside this at home. I can kind of, it, it changes the experience when you bring it at home. It, 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 it feels like you're bringing in more of the restaurant to your home turf. And that's a, that's a branding win in my opinion, but it's also like an experience win that I think restaurants have wanted to be able to do for a long time. I don't think anyone was holding back from doing these cocktails to go because they didn't feel like doing it. It was just the legality of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, even happy hours and cocktail cocktail mixing classes, I did so many of those during the pandemic or special events. I, I mean, I did a lot of them through Virtual Dining Chicago, which is uh, the startup that does these restaurant experiences at home. And you all log into a Zoom and their, you know, their head bartender or their head chef or whoever it is will do a class with you. And they were so much fun. It was something to do. And then you got to talk about all these things and they would give me the kit. They would ship the kit to me and then I get to make it all at my house. So I, I, I do. I, I think the, you know, the creativity here is, is really endless. And, um, you know, there's a lot of options. Yeah, honestly. And and I think, too, people were always concerned that this was going to lead to all kinds of issues. But honestly, at the end of the day, I think the legality of it was stemmed more towards this idea that there has to be there had to be some kind of control maintained over form for alcohol. You didn't want it just kind of like spilling out into the street, so to speak. Yeah. But I think if the, if the pandemic proved anything to us, it's that you can kind of generate this experience without that without that kind of uh, chaos that they assumed would show up. As soon as this became available to people, it's there's no one's no one's going out and going crazy on this so far. It seems if there are specific issues, I feel like they can shop that out. But so far as I've read, this has been nothing but it's incredibly popular. I think I read that in New York, it's something like 85 percent of people wanted to stick around. Not in the restaurant ownership side, the general public. It's an incredibly popular uh, policy. So I think Albany has plans to, if they're smart, has plans to keep this rolling, especially considering there's a lot of you know, where we may be through the pandemic, but there's a lot of lost revenue that needs to be made up over the next coming years. And this is a huge way to do it. So I'm hoping other parts of the country see this as like a model that can be taken forward because everyone wins too. It, it keeps people, it, it ups ticket averages, it ups tips, it ups, there's across the board, the, the money that people spend on this sort of thing can help kind of make up for the last few months, but also keep the industry afloat in the years to come. So I, I'm, I'm really hopeful for it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's, you're helping the industry. You're helping the people that are in the industry. And to be honest, it's just convenient. I don't have to worry about when I order food, then going to my local binnies and picking up, finding the right bottle of wine or beer. It's like someone's already taken it all for me and aggregated it. And I also love when I know a lot of restaurants have also taken to social media to help promote these things. And I remember ordering a really, really good cocktail mix from a local restaurant in Chicago. I saw they were doing this weekend special only, and it was some smoky, uh, smoky Manhattan or something like that. And you could order this kit from them. And I have, I of course ordered from them. I was like, wow, this looks so good. So you know what I mean? It's like, it's sometimes it's all about being in one place too. Cause these places have the license to sell beer. Why? Because it's not being served to them on their physical address. Does that change? And I, I mean, I don't know lawyer, I'm no liquor lawyer, but it seems strange to me that the interpretation of that law should mean that you can't take that out the front door and bring it to someone. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting here and I was like, you know what? I want some Vietnamese food delivered and they're tacking on just like a really nice, simple lager with it. And I was like, you know, I don't have any of that in my fridge yeah. right now. And I desperately want that. Add it to my order. Please bring it to me. I think it doesn't have to be anything like an elevated cocktail program. It could be something as simple as bringing a Sapporo with your sushi. It's just one of those things that I feel like you want the restaurant experience at home. And sometimes that involves getting a drink with it. I hope, you know, 
this conversation is what's happening amongst legislator legislatures. They realize that this isn't just people trying to circumvent liquor law. They, this is part of the, the lifeline of businesses in the hospitality industry. So I'm hoping they see clear through that. Well, it's the whole life after COVID. What does the world look like in a post-COVID world? And I feel like it's kind of like this flexible work schedule where people want more flexibility working from home. They want more. We're going to, I mean, there's just been so many changes in general and maybe cocktails to go, liquor to go and add-ons for restaurants will stay as well. Time will tell. Hopefully it's a yes. Yeah. And it's again, liquor, liquor licenses are so tricky from yeah. state to state. You know, we have a full different set of rules across the country. The one experience we all shared in the last year has been a pandemic. And I think it shows you that maybe there are certain things that can change in unison and that we should all take a bigger picture look at it. It's something we can fight for, you know? Mm-hmm. Agreed. We have our first guest from Canada on with us today, the founder and CEO of Tap and Barrel Group, Daniel Frankel. In just under 10 years, Tap and Barrel Group has established a strong brand with six locations and plans to grow even further over the next few years. The restaurants are well known for their marquee locations, environmental stewardship, and commitment to supporting local purveyors of food, beverages, and art. So I think today's show is going to be extra interesting because we have Zach, who owns Craft Beer Bar, Alphabet City Beer Company in New York City, and we have Daniel, who's the largest largest purchaser of craft beer in the BC province. So I expect a fruitful conversation. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. I was just wondering, was beer the first thing that drew you into the restaurant industry or what was your background in, in working in hospitality and food? Yeah, not at all. I, I didn't even like beer, to be honest with you, when I got going here. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I remember we were installing eight taps and, you know, it was this, this beer rep, uh, Don Gordon, who you know, started teaching me about beer and, and I developed a passion through his passion. But I mean, even even all through college, I, I really never enjoyed beer, to be honest with you. And, you know, because it was always, you know, the standard generic big box beer. And when I opened up my first bar, uh, I, you know, we I started tasting different beers that I had never been exposed to in my life. And it was just delicious. So, yeah, I, I didn't start I didn't start this to for the beer, actually, I started this uh, for, for hospitality, for connecting people. So you weren't much of a Kokanee guy. You're more of a uh, the, the craft wave guy. I can't take it. Hundred percent. Yeah. No. I. I and 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 we're we're so proud that that we are the largest purchaser of of uh, of craft beer throughout British Columbia. Yeah. So tell me about that. I remember I I was lucky enough to spend four years living in Canada when I went to McGill. Uh, in Montreal and the Quebec beer scene, it's very different province to province, but I remember then Quebec was on the, on the, the front end of things changing and just even ahead of the United States in a lot of ways and in a lot of areas. Uh, what was it like to be in getting into business? Cause I, for, for me at the same time, when I got back to the U S being there for the forefront of the craft wave, what was that like planning your, your new business model around this, this really new, exciting world that kind of even for in terms of wine and spirits, like on the beverage side of things, it really kind of revolutionized the the dining experience for for a lot of people. Yeah, well, I had I had a, a I'd say I'd have a I had a 1.0 version of my career, which was when you know I opened my first place and I grew that to ten different locations, and that that was the education. And that's where I learned about about beer and about product and about really how to conduct myself in this in this industry. And then when Tap and Barrel came to be, it was ten years later, and I decided to divest of everything and really focus where my passion was. And one of them was really supporting local purveyors. At the time that we opened the first Tap and Barrel restaurant at the Olympic Village, there were only about 20, maybe 25 craft breweries in BC. We have over 280 craft breweries 
in British Columbia today. I think there's, I think there are about 25 or 30 pending wow. uh, applications with the liquor board right now for additional breweries. So we couldn't even fill all our taps with wow. craft beer. So some, you know, from, from different breweries. So we had to double up from a few. That really ignited my passion for, for the industry. And we decided that we are going to only showcase and only spotlight local product. So we started partnering with breweries and coming up with proprietary collaborations uh, and really getting involved in the development. So we weren't brewing. We are today. We do own a brewery today as well. But at the time, we weren't brewing, brewing beer. We, but, 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 you know, we had a lot of creative say into the products that we wanted to put on our taps. Well, that's a lot of growth. I mean, 280 in a, in a province like BC per capita, that's got to put them near the top for North America. And that's exciting too, because if you guys have become kind of like an industry leader and people see you as a destination to go, I always say you can always go to visit a tap room, but it's one thing to be a restaurant that focuses on like a wide variety of selection, because then people can kind of cut out a couple corners and they can experience a bunch of places in one room. But exactly. So I guess right now we're, we're also, we're kind of here to talk about a bunch of different things in your, in your business model. But, uh, you guys said earlier on you wanted to go environmental, uh, you wanted to go sustainable route, and you wanted to move towards being completely draft. Are you guys succeeding in that? Have you been able to move away from 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 bottles and cans by and large? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, as, as far as beer goes, 100%. Yes, we have no other uh, product in, in cans, except for, that's not true, except for we always carry a couple of gluten-free products for, for you know, for, for uh, they, they just don't sell enough to have in the uh, in the kegs. Uh, but other than that, we are 100% local, 100% on tap. On the wine side, we are still 100% on tap as well. We only support local BC uh, vintners and 100% on tap. In fact, we've eliminated o- over, uh, I-, I only have the numbers up until 2019. By 2019, we eliminated over 1 million bottles of wine from wow. having to be, you know, bottled, corked, capped, labels, you know, you got a cardboard box for every 12, right? Yeah. So an incredible impact on, on our a positive impact on on mitigating the environmental footprint, the carbon footprint, and even with uh, so we do have bottles as far as uh, the spirits, but even then we we have an incredible selection of locally distilled spirits from from vodkas to uh, to whiskeys. We have a few proprietary products as well. Wow, how did you how did you do that? I mean, how do you take on something like that? And what was the support from the community to get you there? This, I mean, the support was immense. Uh, it it took a while to procure the product, so. You know, we, we, we really have a, we, we spend a lot of time on supply chain, a lot more than most restaurant groups that can literally just have a purchaser and goes out and purchases stuff. We actually have to start from the supply chain side. So I'll give you an example on the wine side. Our sommelier doesn't actually live in Vancouver. She lives in the Okanagan, which is the wine region of British Columbia. Oh. And so instead of being a sommelier that actually walks around the stores and, you know, talks about our, our bottles, she does put together the training programs and and, and helps our, our team uh, get educated on how to properly discuss and sell and talk about the wines. But she's actually full-time in the Okanagan working with the producers. And, you know, she's carving out varietals from, you know, three, four, five years in advance so that we can start getting the product ready for for uh, to keg. So it, it, is, it, is a, it is a much more complex process than just calling up a distributor and saying, hey, I want to buy X number of cases of wine. Well, actually, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because clearly BC is on the burgeoning scene in this in Canada. I know a lot of other provinces, it's not the case to have such a, a growing industry for wine and for beer and for spirits, but um, clearly BC is there. As someone who's gone through this themselves, like you said, it's not as easy as just picking up the phone and calling a distributor because 
I assume a lot of these people are self-distributing or you have to build a relationship with them yourself. What was the process like over the past few years getting to know these people? Clearly you're working with them pretty closely if you're doing collaborative brews and things like that. How did you go about doing that and, and what was it like? And, and have you had any good memorable experiences doing it? Well, first of all, a lot of them wouldn't even work with us in the beginning. A lot of them said, well, wait a minute, I don't want my product uh, on tap forum. What's, you know, and that was more of a stigma. I think there was, you know, a bit of a stigma that, ba- that, that, that an on tap wine product equals bag in a box because that's all we knew. So we had an uphill battle. So when we launched, first of all, we said, okay, because of the stigma, we have to really try to get some recognizable brands and high end brands as well. So we were trying to convince, I mean, usually you go to, you know, a winery and, you know, they're pitching you. Here we are pitching them saying, please sell us your product. Yeah. But 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 we don't want you to bottle it for us. Yeah. Give it to us in the barrel, 225 liter barrels, equivalent to 300 bottles per barrel and send it over and we'll actually keg those and, you know, pretty please. And we had so many say no. It was it was in yeah. fact, we opened up. We actually couldn't fill all our wine taps. We had half of them, half of them full. That's it. Wow. So when was the turning point of that then? When did you finally, when did people start saying, hey, actually this works? Hey, I, I, I trust this and you're selling our product. I, I mean, how did you, how do you deal with that? Well, we came out of the gates at the same time that a company, a startup company in Vancouver called FreshTap was uh, starting to, and, and, and we, we partnered with them for pressurizing the, the kegs and, you know, and, and getting the wine from the barrel to the keg. We, we didn't want to do that. And, uh, and they do that. And they, uh, uh, it, it was, it was based on a system out of California called silver taps. So that was sort of the inflection point, uh, that, you know, it's, it started, it, it was marketing between them and between us. We put together a promotional video together. The wineries started seeing the volumes that we're going through right out of the gate. We, we had front page articles in in all the local papers and and not just local but across canada globe and mail the national post right across canadian business and it 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 was only once you know we sort of hit a critical mass level as as far as media and exposure that that the wineries actually started coming to us Uh, on the brewery side it was easy right i mean brewers are are easy to work with and you know (laughs) they're a thirsty bunch no pun intended yeah exactly (laughs) exactly they're (laughs) <laughs> but it's also too, did you find the difference? Cause I know that is the weird thing to overlap there. Food and beverage programs, spirits and cocktails are one thing, but uh, we have a, a sister bar next to us for the last few years. That was one of the first draft only wine bars in the East coast. Uh, and they faced a lot of the same problems. It was a lot of conversations around convincing wineries that this was a worthwhile project. Cause you know, to be completely honest, leading up to it, a lot of the technology made draft wine systems an unmitigated disaster. Uh, and it didn't really do the product very good to be pouring it if you didn't have the, the right system built out. But I think now you're right. It's a huge change. And I think sustainably, it's a huge jump. Uh, and it's great to see how many people are getting on board with it, because I think that was one of the things that's exciting. It's exciting to a lot of people because, you know, seeing wine coming out of tap is like you said, something that someone might have discounted before. But I think people are starting to take on to it in a pretty meaningful way. And, and you know, people that really understand it realize that, you know, if I go to a restaurant and I get a glass of wine from the bottle, I don't know if that bottle's been open for an hour, a day, a week. And, you know, Absolutely. If, you, exactly. if, if you have that same wine that's been poured an hour, a day, a week, it's going to be three different flavor profiles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'd rather have... I'd rather have it after an hour. So, you know, the product that comes this pressurized and and, and uh, doesn't touch oxygen and 
comes out the way the vintner intended for it to taste uh, the minute it lands on your table. That's that's the product I want. So from a quality control standpoint, there's no corkage either. Right. There's no waste of product. I mean, aside from the environmental benefits that, that, that we achieve. Interesting. Um, so as the largest craft beer purchaser in Canada, actually, I have a very curious question for you because we there's a debate that rages on online all the time about uh, I'm more familiar with what happens in, in Ontario with LCBO and things like that. But what's the distributor relationship like with purchasers like you? And is it has that controversy kind of played out the same way in in BC as it has in the other areas? And not getting too nitty gritty because people you know don't need to know the legal ramifications. But for anyone out there trying to build a relationship or build a, an impressive beverage program like you have, is there anything you came across that like was a kind of a roadblock to that? Because that can be difficult in some places. Yeah, not so much for the restaurants or or whether you're food primary or liquor primary. Then it, it you know you're, you're dealing directly with the breweries and with the manufacturers. So it, yeah, I mean the bigger problems are I mean we do have an archaic uh, uh, liquor system in BC and um, it's very regulated. It's all it's government regulated, similar to Ontario LCBO. But you know COVID has uh, miraculously helped to relax some of these. Uh, some of the barriers, uh, and hopefully some of the some of the changes will stick. That's not, you know, that's not confirmed yet. And and hopefully we'll continue to relax some of the some of the complications that that, that are set up from from a governance level. But uh, it's honestly on the on the beer side, it's it's been easy because, like you said, we're a thirsty bunch, and you know, not only thirsty for product, but you know, thirsty for collaboration. And yeah. it's really easy to. You know, it's 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 incredible how collaborative the industry has been. So, you know, if you're not worried about distribution, which on the tap and barrel side we're not, certainly on the brew hall side it's different because Brew Hall Beer Co. is is our collaboration brewery, and we we manufacture and under under our signature series and also under our collaboration and limited edition series. That, then it gets a little more complicated and a little more archaic if you're manufacturing. Yeah. Interesting. So switching gears a little bit here, I want to talk about your expanding of tap and barrel and, and, you know, you went, obviously you have six locations and you guys are, you're thinking about doing even more now. And I was reading in an interview that you said that you've never had a normal nine to five type job. And I'm wondering if that kind of entrepreneurial spirit helped with that and your expansion and thinking through this, your, your business and how you were going to expand it. And, um, absolutely. Yeah, no, nine to five just seemed boring. And uh, I'll be honest, I actually tried to get a few. I tried to get a few jobs, but you know, back then it was a little harder. Like I, I applied at a shoe store and I didn't get it. And you know, I applied at all these places. Yeah. But my, you know, my first money making gig was I, I was an artist, and you know, really fundamentally deep down, I'm I'm not really a business person. I'm actually just an artist, and and yeah. I think I was destined to be a starving artist. But now that I own restaurants, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm I don't have to be a starving artist. I can just I'll, I'll be a I right. Be a, right. Yeah, at least you can eat for free. I'm a well, yeah. I'm a well fed artist. So, uh, um, and, I, <laughs> and I still love that. But you know, I started actually I started selling paintings when I was very young. And that was incredible. And it was incredibly oh. lucrative. I mean, I remember as a, as a kid, at, I remember in grade nine, I sold a painting for $500. And I mean, that was more money than, than God back then in my mind. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's a I lot. Mean, I, today, I would beg to sell a painting for 500 bucks. <laughs> I'm, now I'm wondering, gosh, why would you? Why did you switch over the restaurant yeah. industry? Maybe you had, maybe you were the next Picasso, right. and you didn't even know it. Yeah, you really hit, you hit the ground running. Yeah, there. Wow. and then just hit a wall after that. So okay, then 
then I opened up an ice cream cart. I think it was in grade summer, grade ten. I opened up a summer uh, an ice cream cart and just scooped ice cream all day. Built this little cart, and you know that was a lot of fun. That's not, that was my first hospitality job actually, either <laughs> in the F and B world. But uh, yeah, no, never, never, never actually had a normal nine to five. That's that's true. But but I that's that's because that's because when you're an entrepreneur, there's no such thing as nine to five. I was gonna say, Daniel, I have it on good authority that they're kind of overrated. <laughs> the nine to five world is uh not all it's cracked up to be, you know? Yeah, and you got to work 24-7 when, when it's your gig, right? So there's 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 no 9 to 5. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 9 to 5 is a, is a dream in the in the hospitality world. Yeah, so I'm really happy that you brought up that. So touching back into like where you came from, I know we're, we're kind of going all over the map here in terms of your career trajectory, but what was it like learning as you go? In the beginning, I, obviously, the, the scene was very different. You said you had started up 10 different restaurants that you divested from to move into to what you're doing with... Uh, with your current businesses, but what did you learn? What was it like in the early days for you? What what were you finding as an artist? <laughs> what were you finding yourself most ill-equipped to handle in the early days as you were like getting started in the industry? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's a very humbling experience because, you know, when you're young, you think you know it all and, and then you quickly learn how little you know. And it's very humbling. And, you know, my first lesson was that if I wanted to, if I wanted to see any level of success, I need to bring great people on board. And the next level is, okay, it's not enough to bring great people on board but I need to empower them. Um, and that's a really difficult thing. Yeah. It sounds simple, but for any entrepreneur, that's a very, very difficult thing because you are the bottleneck. And until you actually can empower people and step back a bit um, and give them the resources they need. Uh, and that took me a long time. That that took me a long time and, and several failures as well. Uh, and, you know, failures are the, the tuition fee that you pay for your education. So... I had a great education over the first 10 years. Some of those units, uh, some of the 10 units were, were a great success and provided the cash flow and the war chest when I sold for the for what I needed to open up the Tap and Barrel brand. And, and honestly, some of them I just walked away from. Some of them were not worth anything, and I just walked away from them. And, you know, version 2.0, which was Tap and Barrel, that was a, a, a brand by design as opposed to just... The first 10 years was education for me. You know, I'm going to try something. I'm going to throw spaghetti on the wall. I'm going to see what sticks. And and then coming out of that was, okay, well, why don't I actually do something with intent and build a brand based on my beliefs and my values and supporting local and developing leadership and giving other people, being in service of others, giving other people the opportunity to live a life worth living and to achieve their dreams. And that's what we do now. And I love it because it's a, you know, it really is a very sustainable leadership system where all our leaders know that their number one job is not, you know, the right service points. And, you know, it's not, you know, that food needs to get out in X amount of time. Their number one goal is to create great leaders and everything else will follow from that and to replace themselves. Yeah, that's the lived education you're talking about. Honestly, I mean, I same, I didn't move to New York with any expectations of going, getting into this industry it more found me. Um, but I've kind of similarly to you, I'm learning as I go along. I think the best thing you, I actually don't think I've agreed with anything someone has said in this podcast yet as more, as much as you, what you just said about needing like the you being the bottleneck and having to give up a little power was like the hardest thing for me to learn. And I'm still learning it. I'm not fully there yet, but it's been a lot. So I'm not fully shifting gears here, but 
you guys are more than just a tap room. You also offer a lot of food. And I've looked over your menu and you've got a pretty diverse set of options on there. What has it been like de- developing that? I don't know what your your previous businesses were like other than scooping ice cream. Uh, did you find that it was kind of hard? I, I know I've struggled personally trying to find the right food pairings to kind of match an impressive beer and wine selection. What was that process like for you and, and who helped you along the way doing that? Yeah, we're, well, I mean, we are food primary tap barrel. So we are a restaurant. We, I mean, I mean, we are, we are a restaurant. We're not, we're not just a bar, but I mean, we're, you know, we, we treat our, our food the way we treat our beverage and our beverage the way, you know, we, we treat it all, you know, with the utmost significance and importance. The food program, when we first launched, admittedly, when we first launched tap and barrel, the first location at the Olympic village, we were way busier. We invested a lot in the food program. We had an incredible uh, culinary director and executive chef, but they were like deers in headlight. We opened the doors. We have our first tap and barrel was a 530 seat restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, building one now that's going to be almost 900 seats. We have wow. big, we have large format restaurants. And um, I mean, the, the team were like deers in headlight and we just, we effed up the food program because we just couldn't deliver with the volumes, you know, and I built a kitchen too small. So now, now I invest a lot in, first of all, in, in the development of our, of our kitchens. And we have a whole team that's redesigning our, our spaces, our cook tech. So about a, uh, just before the pandemic hit, um, and we were looking for a while, we were looking for a culinary, uh, uh, executive chef of culinary development. And we found an extraordinary guy. His name is Josh Gale. Uh, he is uh, just uh, really ex- extremely passionate. So we decided that we had to split up the executive chef and the culinary development roles because they're two different things. And once we started really investing in the culinary development, it really made an extraordinary difference on our program. Now we're separating out culinary development. We've got our executive chefs and the head chefs all working on on in-store training, uh, in consistency, and 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 then we've got our procurement team that's that's working on procuring the best products local whenever we can. Uh, sometimes it's tough with things like produce where where we can't consistently year-round get get the product. So to answer your question, we put a, a tremendous focus on our food program, and I think that's what really separates us is that not only do we have this incredible beverage program that's very unique and by the way a lot of the products on our beverage program including the wines and the beers even some of the spirits are completely proprietary you can't get them elsewhere especially with the introduction of our own brewery where we now collaborate you know we we, we did a collab with rogue brewing out of uh, oregon we 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 flew them up yeah they came up here Uh, we did a collab from a buddy of mine in toronto uh, that I grew up with, actually, Henderson Brewing. Hmm. Uh, Aiden Wiener, he flew his brewmaster here. Mostly BC collabs because we're still local focused. But, you know, if we have friends in the industry, you know, we get together, we do unique collabs. And the cool thing is you can't find those products anywhere else except for at Tap and Barrel. And that's, you know, owning the supply chain makes it very unique for, for the customer. Yeah. Are those some of your most popular products? You know what? No, those are not some of the most popular products because they, they don't last long enough to be our most popular products. Our signature series, yeah, our signature series, you know, are, are the most popular. And, you know, even and, and even like the breweries, our, our most popular products are not our own because we don't actually have the capacity to brew enough of it. And we're proud that it's not our own. Our most popular products are breweries that we've been supporting for many years. You know, I'm so proud. That, yeah. Yeah. And I'm so proud that there have been breweries out there that have literally would have closed the door if it wasn't for the amount of volumes that we committed to. 
and and that's great. Wow, that's great. That's amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about the tech side of your business because I know that uh, Tap and Barrel implemented a robo server feature that allows diners to scan the QR code, be connected to the bill at the table. How has this worked for your business and do you plan on keeping this going? Should we be doing the robot dance right now? Is that... Yes. And if you want to, feel free. Yeah. A robotic voice. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds really cool. Uh, well, what I mean, what we did is we teamed up with uh, a buddy of mine. He started a company called IQ Metrics, and they have a product, one of their divisions. It's a separate company called Ready Ready Pay, and um, they built this platform for us. It was, you know, it's great because we're not in the tech world, but by having uh, Chris, uh, as as one of my best friends, you know, I said, "Listen, this is this is really what we would love to see." Yeah. And they built it, and anybody can use it. It's not exclusive to us, but they built a great product. And the great thing is, much like the collabs, and much like early on days where we were, uh, where where we had creative uh, freedom, we had a lot of creative control here as well, a lot of creative license. And uh, they built a program that worked incredibly well and gives you the ability to order directly from your seat. So even pre-COVID, it was actually really very powerful that we had this set up. I mean, everybody during COVID was throwing QR codes down on the tables where people can open up the menus. Yeah. We had that long before. In fact, not, not only did we have QR codes at the tables, but you know they were tappable. You could mm-hmm. literally just take your phone and tap it and it would pop up with the menu. And then you could literally order and you could literally pay. Now, the ordering feature, we... We didn't push that properly. It was it, it was partly a lack of adaptation, and we're still going to bring that back. We pulled the plug on the ordering. We realized that a lot of people still want to be served. Right. In fact, I think the adoption on, on the ordering was t- less than 2%, but the adoption on the pay at the table today, about 17, sorry, early on in the pandemic, it was 75%. Today, believe it or not, it's down to 17%. Wow. So wow. 17% of our guests actually tap the table, it pops open their bill, it links directly to their Apple Pay or Google Wallet or whatever. Yeah, they can scan a credit card, they can just take a picture and it'll scan the number right away. And then they enter their CCV code and boom, it gets paid, it sends them a bill. Or, or an invoice. So we, yeah, we've been playing around with that for, for uh, actually ever since we opened up Ruhal, since day one. Um, and, and it's been at all the tap and barrels as well. Yeah. So that's interesting because it's always this question of where is the intersection of people and technology and how do you how do you manage the two? And I know that beer is such a conversational selling item and so is wine. And people love to, I mean, I always ask my server, hey, what do you like? Or this is what I like if I like sour beers or something. What do you recommend? What do you have new on there? So it kind of doesn't surprise me that People still wanted, it sounds like they still wanted that server interaction, and but they wanted to pay digitally. No, you're absolutely right. It is a really interesting dilemma where that intersection is and, and how that will evolve. And and that's exactly what we've, we we determined, that people still want to be served by people. They're, but, but when it comes to the transactional, I think the intersection of the difference is transactional versus, versus experiential, right? So, so yeah, if you're interested in learning about product, People want that experiential touch. But if you want to get out of there, you want to just, you know, get the heck out of there. You want to tap your phone and leave. Nobody wants to wait for that credit card machine to come to them. No. And that's flipped our tables over faster. I think I think it's increased our flip by 20%, which is huge. By the way, it's also, interestingly enough, increased the tips for the servers. So oh. people are tipping more rather than waiting and getting the paper and signing. People are for some reason, tipping more wow. on on the mobile pay platform. So it's it's a win-win. It's a win-win for the house. Because, well, it's a win-win because we flip our tables faster. The guest is happier because they don't have to wait. Uh, our servers get paid more. So it's, and, and that, I think that's 
that's successful. As far as um, the intersection of, of tech and hospitality on the experiential front, I don't know yet, but we are uh, obsessed about learning about it and yeah. we're experimenting nonstop. You know, now that you say it, I do tend to tip more when I on the screen because I see that if it's like 20, 25 or 30 percent, I'm like, oh, well, it's only... It's only $2 more or $3 more. So why not just hit 30%? Like, I really like them. They really help me. I would love to see the data on that because I feel the same way. I feel like when it's actually staring you down, and I don't think it's just a guilt thing. I think people also see the difference. Like, well, if I tip 25%, it's a difference of a few bucks. And I'm actually down to throw throw that in because, exactly. you know, it was great. So I think also, too, maybe it's just people who can't do the mental math. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it helps walk you through it. And you're right. It's easier just to press buttons than it is to do the math and write something down. And, you know, you also I imagine less error on the side of like running cards. I know every once in a while things could happen when people go to pay a bill. I feel like the technology handing it off to removing the step, the the, the third party there, you, you know, you probably save more than just time. You probably save some errors as well, I imagine. Absolutely. And where we have actually kept the feature for the mobile ordering is for takeout and deliveries. So you can still go to our website or tap a, tap a QR code and then mobile order through the same platform. And then we have order pickup areas at all the restaurants, so you can just go there. And the great thing about that is, you know, we give we give the guest a discount on that uh, because we don't have to pay the third party delivery fees. So they get a better deal. We get we get a, it's a win win because uh. the third party delivery companies, I mean, they are just that model has to change because of course, you know. I mean, they're the only ones that really won during the pandemic. And it's an incredible service, but I mean... We've had this conversation with every guest so far. It's an, and you've, So you've had a similar experience with that up there as well. You've, you've, what, what has been that thought process for you? Like, have you ever considered doing the independent route? Or are you still thinking that it, it makes sense for you to, to stay with them until you can kind of fight the battle from the outside and, and get them to change your rates? Like, how do, you, how do you see it playing out for you? I mean, I think technology will change the landscape there. It's... I mean, I get that it's still expensive, just like in our industry to employ people. The function of delivery can be autonomous and should be autonomous. And that technology, you know, is, is not quite quite ready uh, in a scaled up capacity. It is ready, just just not in a scaled up capacity. And, and I think at that point, there will be so many options. It'll be more commoditized. You know, right now, there these companies are holding too much value in their IP, but once it becomes a commodity service, uh, then I think the prices will naturalize. Yeah. Yeah. So Daniel, you've done so much with Tap and Barrel Group and what's what's next for you? Where is where is uh, TMB headed? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm so excited. We have, you know, we have three new locations that we're going to open up, three new tap and barrel locations opening up in 2022. So after having been on the defense for what, 16, 17 months here, uh, fighting a global pandemic, I'm so happy that we're finally on the offense and we're coming out of the gates. Uh, right now, I've just been so uh, consumed with architects and um you know, lawyers and, and, and landlords and uh, construction managers and really the, the stuff that I like to do. I love to build. I love to create. I love to create these incredible spaces that bring people together and um, and, and allow us to do what we do best, which is hospitality. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, really excited. We have three new locations, uh, marquee flagship locations, every one of them. And it's it, it feels really good to be back in, in growth mode right now. Uh, the other thing is, thanks to the pandemic, 
we had to get creative and we came up with a virtual kitchen or ghost kitchen brand called Fixins. Yeah. So Fixins, yeah, it's a comfort food brand, Southern style comfort ah. food. It's mac and chicken. It is absolutely delicious gourmet mac and cheese and and the best quality fried chicken you've ever had. Biscuits, you know, fresh, you know, home baked, you know, biscuits and and gravy and just all the good stuff. All the and with with all the fixins, of course. So, we 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 launched that as a ghost kitchen brand out of all our Amazing. locations. It's done incredibly well. And what it's the reason why we launched it was because we wanted to hold on to primarily our back of house teams. I mean, when we had all the restrictions and all the indoor dining was closed, we were just racking our brain. How are we going to keep our great people? You know, we talked about the food program earlier. We've invested yeah. a ton in our food program. And what I failed to mention is not only do we have this incredible culinary development team now with a with a tasting panel, uh, but we also have every one of our restaurants uh, is uh, has Red Seal chefs. And we have an internal Red Seal development program where we develop Red Seal chefs. We've partnered up with a school to do that. Um, so how do we hold on to these great people? Because we we spent a lot, we've invested a lot in having these this talent pool. So that was why we decided in six short weeks from brand conception to product testing, to putting together the website and the digital platform and, and the procurement and supply chain and testing out packaging. Literally in six weeks, we launched an entire brand, which was unbelievable. And on day one, it just blew up. And we're so grateful. And we didn't have to let go of anybody. In fact, on the contrary, during the pandemic, we had to hire people because... That's incredible. Yeah, it was augmenting. In fact, some of our locations, the F&B sales in the back of house were higher from fixins <laughs> than, 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 than the sales from, from, from those restaurants. Um, and, and, and now it's shifted now that we now that we're opening up and yeah. we have patios open. But it was really great. So what's next? Fixins is not going away for us. Wow. Uh, in fact, we're probably 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 we great proof of concept. I was gonna say certainly proof of concept there. Yeah, and you couldn't have picked like the better the, the the better option during COVID. I mean, talk about comfort food, gourmet mac and cheese and fried chicken. Right? Where do I sign up? Where do I where do I order? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? If we let a good pandemic pass us by without winning, shame on us, <laughs> right? We got to come out. There you go. We got to come out of this ahead somehow. So that's um, right. Yeah, we've seen a lot of great development, and um, and then there's Brew Hall, which which we are. Uh, working on expanding right now as well. Whether that's uh, another location where we can expand the tank space, we have a little bit of room to expand where we're at, but we're actually up 300% in, uh, in canned production since the pandemic started. And uh, so on the restaurant side, I mean, we went- for the, for the beer geeks out there, what's your what's your output? Just just out of curiosity, what's your output for Beer Hall? I gotta ask my brewmaster. I don't even know. The, I don't even know. I don't know. I'm- I was say you. that is a true brew geek, brew geek answer. Or, or question, but I'll but I'll send you that answer, okay? I promise. I was like, enough. I will. I'll, you know, I'm gonna make a note of it right here. Um, yeah, perfect. And I used to know that actually, yeah, but no um, <laughs> yeah, I I can't even think. Not <laughs> enough at all. Yeah, you know, we we, we bought like in, Dece in December we took possession of a new canning line, um, and it was a great investment. And you know, during the pandemic, I mean, that's a big one too. It was it was a big investment and uh, literally yeah. helped us three x our canning capacity. Um, wow, good for you. But we just can't make enough of our beer. And, and we're also very careful not to take away taps from yeah. our, our brewing partners at our locations. So uh, we, we strike a, a very delicate balance. And I, I know that's appreciated by, by the industry at large. That's great. Um, well, I uh, speaking of beer, I just always, uh, we, you know, we've just discussed about you plan on going on the future and, and 
I think the, the group sounds like it's in a really good position to emerge from the pandemic doing well, but I don't get to ask this question of everyone we have on the show. And for me, whenever I have this beer conversation with people, I always, I have to ask, what's your desert Island beer. If there's one thing you're going to drink, you're stuck someplace and you've got one, one option available to you because it just happened to wash up on shore. What, what do you hope it is? Oh, it's, it's, uh, that's an easy one for me. It's brew hall and neon lights. Neon lights is our pale ale. Uh, we've won Canadian, uh, we, we won the BC Beer Awards on that. Uh, we actually won a bunch of uh, Washington and and, uh, and Canadian beer awards as well for, for for our other beers. But yeah, for me, it's it's Neon Lights Pale Ale. It's uh, it serves you know it's kind of in the middle. You know, it, it's uh, it's a well-rounded beer. Um, all the brewmasters that I hang out with uh, in in our area here, which is called Brewery Creek, and Brew Hall is is uh, right right in the middle of Brewery Creek, which is a massive brewing area. That's you know, when they all gather at Tap and Barrel or, or come here at Brew Hall, that's that's what they like to drink. I'm going to ask you, what's yours? This, so it's the hardest thing for me because I, I have, I don't even brew my own, but just there's like so many difficult beers out there. I tell everyone who's willing to listen that I've always said Rothhaus Pilsner from Germany is one of my favorites because it always goes down easy. But there's just like a million different versions of beer depending on like the day it is. The, the, the everyday beer for me is usually something like what you just said, like a, a middle of the road, nothing too hoppy. Yeah. So, yeah. It's tough. I, I have a hard time picking one, to be totally honest. I, my answer changes with the wind. Yeah, yeah. No, I. And my second would be our, our Colch, because I, and, and that one actually did win a Canadian Brewing Award and also won gold as best German beer category, Colch Pilsner. Oh, wow. Um, and and, uh, and that, that, that one is called uh, Colch Story Bro. <laughs> Colch Story Bro. Keeping up with the beer puns. It's... You love it. <laughs> I. I know, I know. Breweries always love their puns, don't they? They do. They, they, think, it's, they think they're punnier than they are. I mean, Zach threw a few in here, too, throughout this interview. My goodness. Um, well, it sounds like you have a lot of options to pick from, and uh, I can't wait to try it next time I am up in Canada. Can't wait to host you. Fantastic. We'll be there. So thanks so much for coming on today, Daniel. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, my pleasure. I, I really look forward to hosting you. I hope you come to Vancouver soon. And uh, as, as soon as tourism opens up and love to have you at yeah. Hall and Tap and Barrel. You can count on it. Thanks, Daniel. So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other channels. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, 
definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, Eat.News. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms. 